One of the things I would say with this case, it wasn't a single single point failure. It was a system failure. It was a system issue. And you know, we all make mistakes, and we've got to recognize that, that human error is inevitable. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Today, we're going to discuss the tragic death of Drew Hughes, a boy who died much too young. We'll talk about what happened and why, and how it could be prevented from ever happening again. Drew was a 13-year-old boy living in North Carolina. He loved to ride his skateboard, had for years. On a June day in 2013, he was coming down a hill he'd ridden hundreds of times before. But this time was different. He lost control and fell backwards. His head hit the pavement. He wasn't wearing a helmet. Drew was transported to Carteret General Hospital in Moorhead City. But that hospital wasn't equipped to deal with a pediatric head trauma case. He couldn't be flown to another facility. The helicopter was down for weather. So the hospital assembled a team and set up an ALS ambulance to move Drew to a trauma center in Greenville. It was just under two hours' drive. Even though he was awake and talking, the hospital staff wanted to intubate him as a precaution. His parents gave permission, and he was sedated and an endotracheal tube was inserted. Drew's sedation wore off, and he pulled the tube out even before they left. He was re-sedated and re-intubated, and the ambulance headed for the Greenville Trauma Center. During a stop for a crew change... Drew woke up and again pulled the ET tube out of his throat. Now he was awake and breathing. A paramedic gave him a paralytic drug, and after that he was paralyzed, but awake and only partially sedated. A respiratory therapist intubated him again. That's when things began to deteriorate. Drew's O2 sats dropped way down, and he developed bradycardia. The ambulance crew called the ER doc in Greenville, who told them to check the ET tube and reinsert it if necessary. As far as we know, that was never done. When Drew's O2 saturation dropped to 40%, and his rate fell into the 30s, the ambulance diverted to a closer hospital. He had no palpable pulse. (music) 
The hospital staff saw that improper intubation was the problem and fixed it, but that was too late. Drew finally arrived at the trauma center, but he had no brain activity. He had suffered anoxia as a result of the ET tube's improper placement. And Drew Hughes died the following day. What a heartbreaking story. Now, it would be easy to assign blame in this case, but that's not why we're here today. Drew's family started the Do It For Drew Foundation to help educate EMS agencies and smaller hospitals in the hope this will never happen again. Joining me now to talk about this is Drew's father, David Hughes. Thank you for being here, David. Thank you for having me. And also on the line is Battalion Chief Bradley Dean from the Training Division at Rowan County Emergency Services in Salisbury, North Carolina. Welcome, Bradley. Thanks, Scott. David, we'll start with you. The story is incredibly sad. Just the idea that it could even happen is almost unbelievable. Take me back to the day Drew crashed. How did you find out and what did you do? Well, I actually worked at the hospital at the time and so uh, I got a phone call from one of my sons telling me that Drew had been in a skateboard accident and had uh, hit his head had a concussion probably the um and having two Drew had two older brothers having two older brothers and you know we've been through a lot with sports and football and everything else with our you know injuries and whatnot you know I immediately just told him I said well go ahead and bring him to the hospital some friends he was skateboarding with had already called 911 before my, my wife and Zach even got to the scene where he was at. So uh, I immediately walked over to the ED before you know, knowing they were on the way and I was talking to my wife, communicating the entire time. But as soon as I got into the ED, I requested that they transfer him to Vida and Greenville because I knew the, they had the resources. If Depending on what the situation was, I wanted him checked out by somebody that wasn't available at our hospital. So I request, you know, I hopefully like the idea was that he would get there and then just go on to Greenville. I didn't plan on any of this taking place, but the weather affected that. So, Did the idea of intubating Drew while he was awake and talking give you pause at all? Yes. I immediately questioned why. I had been a highway patrolman, North Carolina highway patrolman, and I've dealt a lot with, just like I said, with my older sons. I've dealt with concussions with my older sons, whatever. And I, Drew was talking and he was talking to me. I was by his bedside while the entire time he was in the ED. So I didn't know a lot about intubating a patient. I had no idea that intubating a patient was was as serious a thing as it is. The way it was presented to me was it was a precautionary measure. And basically he would sleep for the trip up there. We'd meet him up there. And and I think they wanted to do that because we weren't, neither me or my wife was going to be able to ride an ambulance with Drew for the transport. I think they, and they, it was documented, they knew it. He was not as cooperative when we weren't with him. Yeah, he was scared. I mean, he's 13. No matter how big he is, he's a 13-year-old kid. And I think they just wanted to keep him sedated. And I think they just, as a precautionary measure, that's the way it was put to us. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, I wish it had been explained, which it never was. I, I never knew that intubating a patient, like I said, was as serious a procedure as it was and the complications and the risk involved with it. I think if that had ever been explained to me, I would have never allowed it. But going by everything I knew at the time, and if I had to go back and do it all again, I wouldn't do anything any differently. It just 
happened the way it happened. Bradley, can you walk us through the circumstances that led to this outcome? Yes, sir. When you look at the, the entire case, the crew that normally would have been doing a transport that night was already on a, on a transfer. So they assembled a crew who were able to get together um, and begin the transport, but they were going to meet the returning crew from another, that was coming back from another hospital in route so they could take over the transfer and the people that they called in could then turn around and go back home. So you've got a crew who's not necessarily familiar with everyone, um, and you've got the hospital handoff to the first crew, and then a crew exchange. Now, the respiratory therapist and the nurse from the hospital were going to remain with the patient, even though the EMS crew personnel were going to change. So midway through here, you've got the change that, that begins to happen, and David can kind of tell you from the time they left the hospital to where that uh, approximately occurred and and kind of what they saw as part of that process. All right. So once they had that process underway, what happened next? It wasn't an ideal situation, um, the way the crew was assembled to begin with and and then doing the transfer itself. But when we finally did leave the hospital, we, you know, we were in our vehicle and we were behind the ambulance the entire time. And we weren't maybe five minutes from the hospital when we met the crew coming back from Greenville. That was quick. I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, knowing that, when you, like I said, when you look back on a lot of things, I don't know how much communication was taking place between different providers, the ones coming back, et cetera. You're saying that if they had waited maybe five minutes longer, the other crew would have arrived at the hospital? Yes. And that could yeah. have made a difference? Well, it, it definitely might have made a difference. There would have been more... Because the people that were in the truck with Drew, besides the nurse, nobody had worked with Drew in the ED. They didn't know his his actions, the way he acted when we were present versus when we weren't present, why he was intubated to begin with. Now, the RT that intubated Drew in the ED was not the RT who went on the trip with Drew for the transport, and they had brought in another RT. And then, like say, they were switching you know crews on the side of the road, and when they did switch, when we did pull over, there was no communication between the paramedic getting out of the back and the one taking over for her in the back. So, and it, and it happened very quickly because Drew was very reactive to stimulus. He pretty much, they would, they could get a reaction from Drew over just about anything. That's, that's in the notes. That's, you know, was documented. He was highly reactive to stimuli. The pulling over and opening and shutting the doors, people getting in and out, he had started, he had started waking up at that point. But when they got in, they started back up on the transport, and it wasn't maybe a couple of miles when he woke up and sat up in the back of the ambulance. My wife saw him sit up in the back, and he started basically trying to get out of the back of the ambulance. He had been in the ED with me right beside his bed, and then Drew wakes up in the back of an ambulance where he has no clue where he's at and doesn't see either of us with him anymore and doesn't know any of the people around him, doesn't recognize any of the faces. He did what a lot of people would do, especially children. Um, They get scared and they panic. And he was a big, strong kid, and he started doing what you wake up with a tube in your throat and you're breathing on your own and you're wanting that out of your throat. And he uh, started struggling with them. That's when the paralytic was pulled and things like that started happening. So when Drew woke up, they couldn't control Drew very well. He wasn't restrained in the back. They couldn't control Drew very well. 
I think, you know, when they did pull over in the next town, they did pull over and the driver got out of the back. So we were sitting literally 10 feet behind the ambulance in our car. It was me and my wife and my son. We had seen Drew sitting up and the, uh, but what what basically we found out took place was the driver got out, helped them restrain him and they administered vecuronium. Basically the vecuronium was administered as a restraint as much as anything. It wasn't medically necessary. He was breathing on his own. They didn't have to. There could have been a lot of things done. They could have opened the back door to the ambulance and, and, um, waved at one of us. I think knowing that was one of the things too, there's a lot of things that pieces that kind of got missed, but you know, knowing how he reacted with us in the uh, hospital, had Drew seen me there, he would have calmed down instantly. I think just knowing we were there, but like I say, jumping to, you know, administering vecuronium on a patient like that, it seemed kind of, kind of extreme to me, but I understand the uses of it, but I also, you know, understand that it needs to be used in the right way. And he was pretty much coming off all his sedation. He was pretty, pretty awake. The all set, all sedation was stopped at the, t- at the time the vecuronium was administered. So he was, for most purposes, he was fairly awake when he was paralyzed, which is um, not a thing I like to think about. They, um, they bagged him from, the, there's two different times in the, in the, his records, but, Approximately, it was 11.15 when they administered the vecuronium, and um, they reintubated him at 11.20. So he went for about five minutes being bagged with no reduction. You know, his O2 sats were good. His heart rate was good. Everything was good. No, there was zero difficulty bagging. That's in the notes as well. But at 23.20, they reintubated him. And then at 23.21, his O2 sats were 86%. And at 23.23, his sats were at 40%. So it's kind of every, it's, it's pretty basic stuff. Um, every red flag that could have been thrown should have been going up at that point. And it's kind of like I always say, was what was the last thing you did before everything went completely? And, and they did call back to the originating hospital, and, and they the physician told them to um, to check the tube. She thought it was more respiratory-related. That was never done. Do we know why that was never done? Has that ever been made public? Well, there's. I'm not exactly sure, other than that they were convinced that the tube was in the right place. We sat through the deposition of the paramedic who was on board at the time, and it basically that's kind of that's kind of tough for me to say without because I get a little bit angry. But I think I think the um, the deposition kind of explains it pretty well. It's just, I think they thought the tube was in the right place and they didn't believe that the ED physician was correct. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. Brad, let's talk about the takeaways of this tragedy. What can we learn from it? I think I think a couple of things um, in, in the first part that we've talked about are, are a couple important pieces to look at. So he was intubated for 
precautionary things because they saw what they thought could have been evidence uh, of of air, which would have you know potentially indicated maybe a basal skull fracture. So they wanted to intubate him for precaution to make sure that he didn't get worse uh, during the transport. Uh, whether that was the correct decision or not um, has been debated many times. Uh, but then one of the facts that we've got to look at is, is he woke up in the ED prior to the transport, which, which tells us so you've got a 13-year-old pediatric patient who uh, metabolized the medication fairly quickly. And even though he metabolized it quickly, they were able to get him reintubated and then begin the transport. But they didn't necessarily change the dose of propofol that he was getting. He had no catecholamine uh, suppression. So when he was reactive uh, as a document to the stimulus, the opening and closing of the doors, the, the transport, the road noise, all were things that were aggravating him in the background. And even though they noted that he was highly reactive to stimuli, they didn't increase the dose. So when he extubated himself and set up uh, and, and began fighting for air, as anybody else would have done since, you know, he was had a tube in and that was uncomfortable uh, and a, a completely something that would, would have been uncomfortable for any of us. They pulled up the, the paralytic and administered that instead of administering uh, a sedative. So one of the things to look at in this case is preparation and preparedness for these patients. I'm not sure that the crew that had switched out that was doing the transport was really prepared from having done stuff with being familiar with each other so that crew resource management in this situation was not being utilized effectively. So you're saying here that a better briefing definitely would have helped? Absolutely. So a a, a better briefing, better crew resource management because of of division of work and who was in charge of what. So they they pushed the, the paralytic medication without sedation, so he was uh, then awake and paralyzed. And then once they re-intubated him, uh, they experienced something uh, that I would say would be cognitive dissonance. And basically, she believes that she saw the tube pass. They believe they heard breath sounds. So even though one thing was telling them that the tube wasn't in, the decrease in the heart rate, the change in everything that they were seeing, then they contacted the facility, and the facility told them to recheck the tube. So now they've got contradictory beliefs, and they believe the tube's in, yet somebody else is telling them to check something else. I think they went through an entire process of, of not being able to fall back on, on training because there may have been a lack of that uh, for a particular case like this. You know, I promised myself I wasn't going to do this, but is this a case of somebody in the ambulance second-guessing a doctor who had an opinion? Yes. I believe they were second-guessing because they were there and they believed that that the tube was in the right place. And and I believe that's what caused the the entire thing to continue to spiral out of control was was not falling back and looking at the basic training that – that we go through whenever you place it in a tracheal tube, if something goes wrong, the first thing you want to look is is displacement and dislodgement, and then is there an obstruction, then is there a pneumothorax, and then is there an equipment failure. So, so they didn't fall back on using their basic stuff, even though it was suggested to them. And the results were, as we say, a negative outcome. 
but we're looking toward what we can gain from this. And David, if you would tell me a little about the Do It For Drew Foundation and what it's all about. Since we started the foundation, I guess having to go through this process, it's it's been difficult because we've learned a lot more than we probably ever wanted to. There's there's basically patient safety. We want to prevent anybody from ever having to go through what we had to go through that evening. So you know, improving emergency medical care. Uh, we work. I guess we work a lot with EMS agencies, paramedics, et cetera. They really jumped on board. There's a lot of, and I'm sure you're aware of this. There's a lot of politics and and boards and lawyers and everything else that gets in between just about every profession in the medical world. So it's it's kind of it's kind of difficult to really make some changes, but we're hoping that um, people will take this story and learn from it. You know, we speak to a lot of different, I speak to respiratory therapists, physicians, nurses, paramedics, whatever, anybody that wants to hear about what we do. And I think there's a, I think there's a culture change that really kind of needs to take place in the way that people look at how they do their jobs. And I think it's, I think there is changes being made. I I think that, um, I think that Drew's case has saved lives and we get told, told that on various you know, many times. And, but, you know, besides our other goals of the foundation, we have some local things we do for scholarships and things like that. But on a national level, we really just want to raise awareness about what happened to Drew, the frequency of it. As it was put to us one time, it's not common, but it's not uncommon. The, you know, the number of incidents of accidents like Drew's, you know, there, there are too many. And it's, and we don't focus just on intubation. We focus on all of medical care because every step of the way, there were so many people involved with Drew's case. There were three different hospitals and three different levels of hospital. You know, three different all these all these EDs that touched Drew. All the you know, we get I get stopped by people in the grocery store here by people that worked in the ED at the at Greenville at Violet Hospital who were in the ED the night Drew came in. And they just want to talk to me and tell me about it. And it's just amazing to me the, the effect it had on them. We want people to understand the seriousness of the job they're doing and, and be the best providers they can be to not, you can make mistakes. You're not always 100% right. Don't ever be opposed to people questioning what you're doing or, and never be opposed, you know, never be afraid to ask questions or raise points if you think something, you see something or, it gets complicated. Like I say, it's kind of a rabbit hole. We run, we start going down with the foundation because every every presentation that I do, so many points get brought up. <laughs> and you know, you, you being in, in in the medical world, I think you understand a lot of it. There's a lot that goes into how how changes are made and what gets put into place and who does what. And it's 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 going to be a long road, but I think we'll get there eventually. It's very it's it's very dear to us that we see positive changes made. And I know you're a man of faith. Have you and your wife been able to see the hand of God moving in all this? Yes. I, I honestly, I think the night that it all started, I think there were instant, there were things that just fell into place certain ways. I think that evening, once this all started, I think we were headed down one path and Drew was headed down another path. It was pretty, you know, looking back on it, it's like, it's pretty clear. And I think that, we, we, everybody always says, why, you know, when it's your, their child, child or family member or whatever, it's like us, like, why would you, why would this happen to Drew? Especially something this bad. Cause I can promise you there's a, you know, it would have been, it would have been much easier on our family if, um, his head injury had killed him. I mean, being very honest with you, we would have closure. We would, 
we wouldn't have, it would have been easier on us, as terrible as that is, you know, to think about in any way, losing your child. But I think that because of what happened to Drew and because Drew was the person that he was, I think more will come out of this in, in what gets done in the medical world. Like, look, people all over the country contact us wanting to use Drew's story. And want, they want information, want resources, whatever we can give them to help them tell Drew's story. We do do presentations. We do travel and speak to groups. Um, it's kind of hard at times just because it's just me. Logistically, it gets difficult. My wife comes when she can, but, but um, being a school administrator, um, she's, you know, so it's just, it's, it's tough on us, you know, schedule-wise to be able to get to everywhere we'd like to be, but but we do everything we can. And I think, you know, I don't know, something about Drew's, who Drew was and Drew's picture, and people see it and read the story, and it just really, I think it really hits home with them. When I do a presentation, it's it's always wonderful to me to for all the messages I'll get after the fact about and it's kind of one one thing I do with my presentation is I you know one of my main goals and I I say it a lot of times is when I'm done talking to you if from then on I hope you'll always remember Drew's face or this story when you're working with a patient no matter why you're working with them but particularly if you're working with an intubated patient but and man working on managing someone's airway. Brad any final thoughts? One of the things I will say with this case, it wasn't a single single point failure. It was a system failure. It was a system issue. And, you know, we all make mistakes, and we've got to recognize that, that human error is inevitable. But we've also got to look at some things that we can do to, to reduce errors in, in critical situations like this. So one of the first ones that you've got to look at is, you know, we, we've got to recognize predictable human factors. So when people are fatigued, stressed, memory, vigilance, Attention to detail, all of those, you know, lead increased possibility for errors. The second thing you've got to do is you've, you've got to designate a team leader and, and make sure that that's, that's done so every step and all the attention to detail can be followed. And then, as I mentioned, crew resource management for critical interventions, being familiar with your team in those situations and having trained together and done things together really makes a difference so you can kind of rely on each other. So, like I said, it, human error is, is inevitable, but we've got to do what we can to reduce that um, as much as possible. And, you know, that's why I think the, the Do It For Drew Foundation is so important because that's, that's their aim. Uh, so they've taken something that was a horrible tragedy and turned it into something that hopefully can, can help reduce the next medical error. And that uh, will do it for now. David Hughes, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. And Bradley Dean, thank you for being with us. Scott, thank you very much for allowing us to, to join you to do this. And we put some more information on the Do It For Drew Foundation and how it works on our website at code3podcast.com slash drew. I hope you'll take a look. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.